Well, good morning. Why don't you guys stand? I want to also echo my gratitude for you as you've conveyed that and affirmed Arlene and me. We love you, love being here, love this team, and it's been a delight for us. So, um, are you glad the person next to you is here? Okay. That was a really, really good answer because they were listening for how you would respond to that. So wherever you are, in this room or elsewhere, if you're watching like in a correctional facility, in a small auditorium somewhere, a living room, uh, it's very simple, don't, so don't freak out here. I'm not gonna give you anything complicated. I just want you to, and especially if somebody's alone, go to them, and if you're alone, approach. Turn to at least a couple of people and say, I'm glad you're here. That's all you need to say. I'm glad you're here. Go ahead and do that right now. Okay. Uh, now, now if you would uh, turn to each other and provide your definition of the universe. Just kidding, just kidding. Um, let's acknowledge the one who is our head. We are Christ's body. Let's speak to him, our head. Let's, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it's your idea that we're in these places ultimately. For us, it might be habit or an invitation of a friend or any number of factors that we think led us into these places. But bottom line, you got us here. You, you brought us here to speak to us. It includes me. I want to listen along with my, my companions. We are glad each other is here. And may you expand in our hearts an awareness of the significance of such a simple statement to say that I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're journeying with me in life as we're navigating through a fallen planet. So we'll listen together. I pray this in the name of our head, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. It was a couple of years ago, and some buddies of mine and I were in Russia. The church that I was pastoring at the time, we sponsored an orphanage in Russia. We went over to visit it, and also to visit some of the cities around that had halfway houses, kids who'd grown up in the orphanage, and then they would go to these particular halfway houses as they began their work lives. And we took an afternoon in Moscow, went to the state Tretyakov Gallery, some famous artwork there, and we were just going through it. And I, last week we talked a lot about the heart. And the more that I've learned to engage my heart, the more I've learned to embrace beauty of all sorts. Not just in an art museum, it can be the beauty of a third baseman nab and a screaming line drive. That's beautiful as well. But un unpacking beauty, exploring it, that's why I was engaging the way I was. And I got behind, somehow separated from my two buddies, to the point that I was needing to rush through the museum to catch up with them. I didn't want them to leave me in Russia, you know, so uh, I'm, maybe they were trying to shake me. I don't know, but I, I'm moving through, and I was going through each room fairly quickly, and then there was one particular room, for some reason, a painting caught my eye. It might have been the size of it, which was taller than me and, and wider, some of the colors, maybe its location in the room, uh, but I think a lot of it had to do with the subject matter. It was a prison rail car I came to discover with five prisoners, a, a mother, a child, a soldier, a peasant, a farmer, 
They're paused on a railway platform headed to Siberia. At that time, they were shipping people off. That's where they began to do that. And so these people, in a very hopeless, inhumane circumstance, were doing something that was very humane. They were gathered around this child, and they were all peering through, and the child is feeding the birds through those prison bars, the birds that were gathered on the railway platform. I was intrigued enough to stop and I went over to see, well, what's the title of the painting? And the plaque down at the bottom right-hand corner said it was by Nikolai Yeroshenko in 1888. I know last week I dissed smartphones, but let's bring them back to their place of prominence. I picked up and got my smartphone. You can research as a result wherever you are. And I wanted to find out more of the background. And here particularly I wanted to know, okay, that's an that's a intriguing name. There is life everywhere, even in the midst of a circumstance like this. What kind of a life is he talking about? I didn't think it would be referring to that whole, hey, well, just be grateful you're breathing right now. You know, you're alive. The other option could be terrible, so go ahead and be. I think it was different than that, deeper than that, but I wasn't sure. So I got the phone out and found out that when he had painted it in 1888, Yershinko had been inspired by a short story, sort of an essay that would have been written three years earlier by a guy you might have heard of. His name's Leo Tolstoy. He's written a little book called War and Peace. You can read it this afternoon if you want. Um, but he had also thankfully written some shorter things, including a short story essay entitled What Men Live By. Tolstoy's Father of Christ. So I looked, at, looked up the, the short story, and the first item in this essay is 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. So this is what motivated Yeroshenko to do his painting. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. So immediately when I saw that, I understood several things. Let me give you three in particular. One, I knew that Yeroshenko was referring to the type of life you and I have been talking about these past couple of weeks. I refer to it as life with a capital L. It's not just heart beating life, lung breathing life. It's humanity thriving and throbbing life. It's what Jesus came to provide for us. Not religiosity, but I came that you might live, that you might have life. So I knew it was that type of life that Yeroshinka was saying is everywhere regardless of our circumstance. The second thing that I realized was that that life is nowhere better impacted than in the context of community. First John 3.14 is saying, as we're loving, we're living. And somebody who's not loving, even if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're not loving somebody, you're in this realm of death. It has to do, it's related to what Romans talks about, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Even if I'm a follower of Christ and alive, I can still be inviting death consequences into my life. And if I'm not engaged in, in life-giving relationships, the other option is I'm depriving myself of life, really, depriving some other people of life, and I'm in this realm of death. The third thing that I realized as a result of those two, then going back to the painting, it's a result of seeing him. I had noticed him when I first sat down. He was a sixth prisoner. Yeroshenko wants us to see him, but just not right away. When he says there is life everywhere, he's saying these five people are engaging with life, but there is another sixth prisoner on the other side of the rail car. You can only see his silhouette staring out into a stark, gray, cloudless, uh, cloud-filled sky. 
and he's missing the life because he's not engaged in that community on the other side of the rail car. And I said, too often, I'm that guy. I'm missing the life because I'm, I'm not engaged. I was rushing through my life, through work stuff, through relationship stuff and health stuff. And the life that's everywhere is a choice. Will I engage with it or not? And I'm going to come back to that. But let's take a review a little bit quickly of where we are. If you're new here, you see a bunch of mirrors up here. It's not because I'm always wanting to check my tie. Uh, it's because we are all Imago Dei. We're all mirrors. We're all in the image of God. Regardless of if we're Christians or not, or at church or not, every human being bears the image of God. But because the rebellion and the consequent distortion of our rebelliousness, our sinfulness, the image is distorted. When I come to Christ, I'm forgiven of the rebellion as well as the consequent distortion. Then the journey starts where I begin to have him refine me. His spirit takes up residence and he begins to remove some of the distortion. And that's a process that happens over the course of my lifetime only to be completed in the new day when we will once again be fully resonant with the image of God without any distortion. But in the meantime, it's reflecting him more and more and more. And the goal in my walk with God is that my imageness would increase. My reflectivity would get more healthy and accurate. How does that happen? Not just as an individual, but as a community of mirrors, the church distributed wherever it is. How does it happen? It's when we get together in community and we engage with both life and heart issues. My imageness, that's the key to my fulfillment individually and the key to my fulfillment with you as the body of Christ is a result of life and heart added together. When we come to Christ, we're given a new heart. We're told in uh, Ezekiel 36, I said, guys, could you have some more Play-Doh? I just love the smell while I'm, I'm, I'm teaching. And uh, he says, I'm replacing that heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. I made a lie, but it does not mean, it's not automatic that I will experience this life with a capital L. My heart has to adopt the right habits and my heart has to remain soft and pliable. If my heart is hard, Ephesians 4.18, I'm depriving myself of the life of God. I'm missing, separating myself from the life of God. And so for the way for us as churches distributed wherever to image God is to, yes, be made alive by hearts being made new, but then it's to cultivate that life by cultivating heart habits. What does that look like in a community? We're going to spend a lot of time in Hebrews. Hebrews is written to the distributed church back in the first century that was going through a lot of persecution. They were scattered. He's encouraging them. He's talked about the image, Christ being the image of the invisible God. But here in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving, what? Heart. Last week we talked about how we're illiterate when it comes to the heart. We engage with Jesus' way and truth, but not life, because we're illiterate when it comes. You know, with mind stuff we engage, with action stuff we engage, but what about with our hearts? He says, make sure that you don't, you, you, you don't have a sinful, rebellious, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So what happens, even though I've been given a new heart, a heart of flesh, it can grow crusty, just like Play-Doh when you leave it out of the can for a while. 
And one of the ways that my heart can remain pliable is to remain in relationship with you. As we're pursuing life together, you go through, that theme comes up. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to what? Death. So that we may serve the living God. So you got this in the back of your mind, hopefully, that my imageness is directly related to my fulfillment as a human being, and it's the result of heart and life issues, me engaging my heart so that I can experience life and therefore image God more clearly. But there's no better place for that to happen in the context of community. So in the next chapter, Hebrews chapter 10, we're gonna spend the rest of our time in this text, starting with verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new, in what kind of way? A living way. In the valley of the shadow of death, you've got now a, a way to live. You've got a path to take that's living and it's been opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us corporately, Christianity, listen very carefully, Christianity is immensely personal, but it is not private. It's, it's corporate, it's communal. Let us, God, we know we, there's no way to better image God than in community. He says, let us make humanity in our image. So when we're engaged in community, we're imaging him, we're reflecting him. When all these mirrors are gathered together in, in, in various places. So let us do something for this to, to gain momentum. Let's draw near to God together with a sincere heart with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward loving good deeds. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So let's go back through that text. You could, we looked at five last week, five habits of the heart, there are hundreds more. Maybe you could say this one is the heart habit of supportive relationships, but maybe it's better to look at it as, what is the environment of those heart habits supposed to look like? So starting with verse 22, 22 let's go through this passage. Now some of you who kinda, I lost you with the art painting thing earlier saying, what about sports? Okay, let's talk about baseball. We're gonna spend the rest of our time going around a baseball diamond. And this is really deep, but you need to pay attention. There's home plate, but to get to home plate, you first have gotta to go to third base. To get to third base, you first gotta pass second. To get to second, you first gotta to go to first base. So let's start with home plate. Is, by the way, home plate where you finish or, in, or begin? That's one of them trick questions from a preacher. I ain't answering it. It's both. What's home plate? What's the goal of our journey in our community? Let me give it to you. Authenticity. Authenticity. Look at verse 22. He says, let's draw near to God with what kind of heart? A sincere heart. The, the, the Greek word there is aletheinos. It means to true, real, genuine, authentic. 
back in the days of Rome, the Roman Empire's conquest of their known world, Greek was, Greece was one place that they conquered, and as we all know, the Greek artists were renowned, and all of a sudden, you began to see an influx of Greek art that came into Rome, and a Roman senator would pay a lot of money for uh, a full-size marble sculpture, and so, these Greek artisans would, as they were working, every now and then they'd make a mistake. It's one of those oops moments. And oops moments are not good when you're working with a full-size piece of marble. They couldn't afford to replace it. So what they do is they do a mixture of crushed pulverized marble stone along with some wax. And they, they had developed, really made a science out of it so that they could then smooth it into that chipped part. You couldn't tell the difference. So you made a mistake and there's this big hole in somebody's, some sculptor's cheek. You just smooth it over. It worked great till it was sitting out in the hot sun in some Roman senator's courtyard during a dinner party. And the sun comes out, beats on it, the wax begins to melt. You've got a very unhappy Roman senator. So that prompted them to develop a law that involved a certification of authenticity. More specifically, each artisan would have to guarantee that their sculptor was without wax. Well, they weren't speaking English at the time, they would use Latin. The Latin phrase for without wax is sin sera, sincere. The writer of Hebrews exhorts us, relate with each other without wax. Let's gather with hearts that are without wax, that we're not faking it. We're not just going through the motions. You know, remember the, the, the five heart habits last week? Let's do those together, but without wax. Scripture, let's not just treat Scripture as some religious book, but as a manual for thriving humanity. Let's eat it together. Let's digest it together and not just tip the hat and then do our own thing. Let's go for it together. Single-heartedness, let's spur one another on so that there's a depth to the way that we're walking. Supplication, we're not just saying prayers, but pouring out our hearts. Stewardship, we're not just being polite, putting a couple of bucks in an offering plate, but we are being stewards sacrificially of all that we have. And we're providing space and refuge for each other. That's the goal, that's home plate. But how do we get there? Okay, so this is very deep. Might need somebody else to explain it to you, but let me go ahead. In order to get to home plate, I've got to pass by third base. You're supposed to say, oh. Okay, there we go. Third base, in order to get to authenticity, let's call third base accountability. Accountability is necessary to cultivate an environment of thriving, life-giving authenticity. And when you heard that word accountability, it brought up warm flutters in your heart, didn't it? We just love that word. Not so much. Too many of us think of uh, maybe a, a nagging human being in our lives or you know, maybe a spouse or a coworker or a boss or uh, somebody that's just so critical. We think accountability and we think criticism. That's not the kind of accountability that's life-giving. Luciano Pavarotti, he was a guy that had a pretty decent voice. If you've never listened to him sing opera, if you've never heard one of the greatest human beings ever to stand in front of a microphone or a group of people and sing. 
He died in 2007 after an amazing legacy of music. In his latter years, he was telling the story of his beginnings. He grew up in Modena, Italy. He went to teacher's college while he was taking singing lessons. Once he got his teaching certificate, he was thinking, maybe I'll teach and sing. And his dad said, Luciano, no. You can't teach and sing. He said, well, which, I mean, it, it seems impossible, but his dad said, you must choose. You cannot sit in two chairs. Anyone who tries to sit in two chairs usually misses both of them. He said, choose one chair. And Luciano chose singing. Aren't you glad? But his dad provided accountability in that moment. Because Luciano, he was kind of going from this chair to that chair to this chair. And, and his father said, choose a chair and choose the right chair. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promises faithful. Remember the toddler I mentioned last week in the toy room? This is a great toy, it's gonna to be wonderful. Oh, this is a great toy when we were talking about single-heartedness. Because we have a tendency to swerve. Luciano was swerving. Deuteronomy, you see these all throughout scripture. Similar exhortations, I'll give you one. Deuteronomy 28, 14. Do not turn aside from any of the commands I give you to the right or to the left, following other gods and serving after them. Isaiah talks about the crooked path that they're gonna be made smooth when Messiah comes. Peter in his exhortation in Acts 2 says, be saved from a crooked scoliosis generation. Don't swerve. Be rescued from that. But we need accountability. Because all of us have a tendency to swerve. And a lot of times I can't tell when I'm swerving. And I need to invite people into my life that will help me walk without swerving. Just like Luciano's dad, I need to give permission to people in my life to say, Matt, I see a little swerve. I see a little variation in the theme that you've said that you want to pursue. They're not coming along critically, strongly, yes, but, but I've given them permission. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17, is iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Proverbs 24, 26, an honest answer, it's like a kiss on the lips. Proverbs 12, 15, a fool thinks he needs no advice, but a wise man listens. Proverbs 27, verse 5, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. 
powerful. Maybe before the day is done, grant permission to somebody that you trust. Say, I want to give you permission to wound me. Not in the deep sense of the word. It's metaphorical. But to speak truth. Is there, is there anything in my life where you see I'm swerving? But the environment for that accountability is very important. I, you know what? I got something fairly deep to share with you. Before you get to third base, you have to first pass second base. Okay, now, you gotta, now, we're, now we're talking. Second base is affirmation. If we're looking at characteristics of a, of a life-giving community, yes, home plate is authenticity, but to get to authenticity, we first have to have round third base and, and be accountable to each other. But in order to be accountable in a life-giving way, we need to be affirming of each other. Verse, verse 24, and let us consider how we may spur one another on to, to love and good deeds. When's the last time that I really sat down and, and considered the people in, in, in my community? I wonder how I could spur her on. I wonder how I could spur him on. How I can encourage them. If you go to the Library of Congress, I mean, we forget how important it is that we all need that, even with people that we think don't need it. If you go to the Library of Congress and you have the right connections, I hear, uh, they can pull out a little blue box. It has a label on it. And it's the contents of Abraham Lincoln's pocket on the night of April the 14th, 1865, the night that he was shot. Five items are in that little box. You want, to know what, you want to know what they are? Okay. Well, let's just move on then. Uh, a handkerchief with A. Lincoln embroidered on it. A country boy's penknife. Spectacle case that's held together by string. A purse with Confederate money in it included a $5 bill, Confederate $5 bill, very ironic. But the reason I'm bringing it up to you is number five. Clippings, old newspaper clippings that he was carrying with him. And they're all positive newspaper articles about him. Including a speech by John Bright who called Abraham Lincoln the one of the greatest men who've ever lived. Now we know that now. People, it wasn't popular back then. He was experiencing immense criticism and he was wanting to carry with him to get through affirmation. We forget how important that is. We need people spurring us on. I just read it a minute ago, Hebrews 3.13. Encourage one another every 15 years, whether it's convenient or not. No. <laughs> Encourage one another daily. Well, I, I told him he was doing a good job yesterday. I'm not going to tell him again. Really? Boy, that would be terrible, wouldn't it? 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. Romans 14, verse 19, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. But we don't. Why? 
lot of it is pride. We don't like putting the spotlight on somebody else. By the way, pay attention. Next time you hear somebody say, I don't want so-and-so getting the big head, do a personal evaluation just internally. Is this person that's saying this a humble person? Most often it's not going to be somebody who's humble. Humble people realize, you know what? It's up to God to humble people. It's up to men and women to humble themselves in God's presence. We got enough going on in a fallen world. We need each other. We need people breathing life into each other. And speaking life. And when you've crossed second base with the affirmation, that's when third base becomes healthy. When the affirmation is there, all of a sudden the accountability is something that can motivate you. Anybody here have a coach in high school that was really good at accountability but was terrible at affirmation? They weren't a good coach. They were just screaming at you all the time. And something with my sons. You know, the book that I've, I've written for him, told you about it last week. Do you think it's all about accountability or affirmation? It's one of them other trick questions I ain't answering. It's both. To spur each other on, to say, you can do this. I want to encourage you. But we're afraid to. We, we don't want to be sappy. G.K. Chesterton said, the meanest fear of all fears is the fear of sentimentality. We don't want to be sentimental. Tell you what, you go back to those passages. I'm not looking at sentimentality. I'm looking at life-giving encouragement that comes up where all of a sudden I'm spurred on to say, I can do this. I can get through this next season. I can get through this day. A note, a text. And so often right now, many of us are thinking, I'm not sure I have enough encouragers in my life. And you know what? That's sobering. There's a limit to how much control you and I have got over that. But let me tell you what you have complete control over. I have complete control over who I'm encouraging and how many people I'm encouraging. He's saying, well, it takes some courage. I have to think through to keep from saying the same thing to them every day. Ah, uh, yeah. Consider how to spur each other on to love and good deeds. Tell somebody before the day's out, you appreciate them and tell them why. And if somebody tells you, receive it. Don't do any of this, oh, no, that's not true. Because oh, we, we, we get uncomfortable. You talk about a healthy family, a healthy small group, healthy community. is where people are giving and receiving affirmation and also practicing biblical life-giving accountability that leads to authenticity. But you know what? I got something kind of deep to share with you. Before I can get to second base, I first need to get to first base. You guys are awesome. I'm affirmed right now. Thank you. And first base is real simple. Availability. Yes, we start with authenticity. God sprinkling us with his, his clean water. We're free as flawed men and, and forgiven men and women to relate with, uh, with each other in authenticity. But for this life-giving rhythm to happen, I need to just be available to you. 
to come alongside. Verse 25, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. There you go again. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Don't quit getting together as some people are in the habit of doing. Here in the living room, in the, in the correctional facility, we've, we, we need to be available to each other. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves, not just when it was convenient, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Uh, verse 46, four verses later, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. I, I, there's that sincere hearts thing again. Breaking bread, I love that phrase. You know, the, uh, the Latin word for bread, and you can hear it in several languages, pani. The prefix cum means with. So cum pane is with bread. Cum pane is the root word where we get the word companion from. You know what? A lot of times to just companion together is to break bread together. Why don't you do that this week? Break bread with somebody. You don't have to go to some fancy restaurant. It could be literally, hey, we're just going to get bread. But as you're sitting there and you're eating what's necessary for physical life, you're experiencing what's necessary for life with a capital L. And it all starts by being available. And that's a privilege that we take for granted. It was a couple of years after my dad died. It was one of my greatest encouragers and affirmers and accountability partners. He was the best man in my wedding. He's who I called first off whenever I needed counsel or encouragement. He died of a massive coroner in a friend's office. They were laughing at a joke. Godly man, last third of his life was his strongest in discipling other men. But there was no goodbye. Just a phone call that said, Matt, I hate to tell you this. Two years after that, I was in my office at home with two little toddler boys. There were the two older brothers. The younger brother was a grandson that granddad had never met. But these two older ones, they barely remembered their grandfather. One of them was just a, a year old. And they're cuddled in my lap. They're big, you know, I think it was like four and seven or three and six, something like that. And, we were recording them making silly sounds on, on my laptop, you know, and then I'd play them back and then they'd cackle and some really good ones I'd, I'd save. I'd need to label the file, you know, to save, name the file. One of these, I'd name the file and it started with D and I entered in D and something else and all of a sudden a file name came up, Dad's voicemail. I, I stared at it for a minute and I'd forgotten I'd made it. You know those things you do in grieving? It was the week after he died, and I called his, his office number just to hear his voice. And I played it over and over, and finally said, I'm going to record this. And there it was. I hadn't heard it in a couple of years. And almost without thinking, I clicked on it. 
And my boys stopped their giggles, partially because of the, the, the warm southern accent they, they heard through my computer speakers. Part of it was because they heard their last name repeated by the southern accent. And maybe a lot of it had to do with the tears welling up in their dad's eyes because I listened to my father's voice say, hello, this is George Hurd. I'm not available to take your call right now. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, may we never forget that the fellowship of Christian brethren and sisters is a gift of grace that may be taken away from us with no warning. And I resolved right then to be available to my sons in any way that I could, which is part of the motivation for writing the book because I want to always be available to them in affirmation and accountability, even maybe if I've headed home early. Be available while today is still called today. This week, a friend emailed me and put at the end of an email something that's very significant to me. He had no idea. He put a Hebrew phrase that's used in Jewish, a lot of Jewish celebrations, especially weddings, and there's a story behind it years before. I won't tell you, but this, the expression is this. Lahaim. Lahaim life. Jews have been toasting with that for centuries. Earliest recorded reference to something similar as Akiva, the first century rabbi. And I just think of those first century believers getting together, breaking bread, and being summoned, having been called out of death to life, being following Jesus who had raised them to life, and they were the church of the firstborn, getting together, being available in such a way that they're affirming each other and spurring each other on and holding each other accountable and becoming an authentic, thriving, throbbing community, saying together, to life, not just heart-beating life but to life with one another. And may that be your priority and mine because the world is desperate to get a reflection of the love of God and the life of God. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, I thank you for these men and women. I thank you for their hunger for truth. the thirst for life. And we thank you for the privilege that we have to have that person in our lives that we can say, I'm glad you're here. For some of us, we told a total stranger that. Maybe they won't remain a total stranger, I don't know. But may before the day's out, may we repeat that phrase to somebody else and say, I'm glad you're in my life. Of course, we've got all sorts of stuff we're trying to navigate through, but I'm glad. I want to be available and affirming and accountable and authentic with you. And I can't help but think of that last phrase in that passage we just read. We should do this all the more as we see the day approaching, meaning heaven coming. It's as if you're exhorting us to taste life and in so doing to taste heaven before it actually happens. To taste a taste of heaven, to experience a glimmer of what heaven is like. So may we engage in life-giving community in such a way that it makes us long 
for getting back home and back to the garden.